busca de un mejor destino para ti lo que viniera de ti. Welcome. Our guest today is Philippe Bourgois. Hope I said that right. And yeah, we are going to talk. <laughs> Welcome and thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I, this is exciting for me. Today we're going to talk about your time in El Salvador in the early 80s, and I don't want to say anything more than that because I am really interested to hear your your perspective on things. We're really excited to be talking with you today, and I guess the best place to start is simply a little bit about who you are and what you what you're currently doing. Sure. I'm a, um, I'm a professor of anthropology uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, and I also have a position in the medical school in family and community medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm currently writing a book on U.S. inner city poverty. But as we'll be talking about, I used to work in Central America and still do work um, on, on human rights work based on what was happening in the 1980s. So you went, oh. you went to El Salvador in the early 80s at the beginning of the war um, to do some graduate work. And we, we wanted to start by asking what, what specifically brought you there and, and made you decide to, to go to what was a very dangerous place. Sure. I was um, a graduate student at Stanford University, and I was planning on doing my dissertation fieldwork in the refugee camps, the Salvadoran refugee camps in Honduras, on the Honduran side of the border, just across from El Salvador, just across from the provinces of Cabañas and Chalatenango. And I was interested in trying to understand this phenomenal situation that was occurring, the massive mobilization of, of, of basically starving peasants into, you know, revolutionary sort of territories and, and armies and setting up cooperatives and so forth. It was a super, super exciting time. And there was a big debate. It's going to sound sort of funny in retrospect, but, you know, academics are always debating these arcane subjects. And uh, there was this big debate in academia over what kind of peasant becomes revolutionary. I was very frustrated with those d debates because they were all based in history, you know, looking at the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Vietnamese, you know, and so forth. And no one could quite figure it out. And I said, well, there's all these revolutions going on in Central America and, and primarily in El Salvador at that very moment. And there's thousands, tens of thousands of revolutionary peasants, why, do, why don't I just go and talk to them and ask them, you know, how all of a sudden they're throwing off, you know, a hundred years of, of oppression and servitude. So there were basically already large refugee camps in Honduras from, you know, small farming populations that had fled from the zones of conflict. So I was there, I went a couple of times, but the last time I went, in November of 1981, they said, well, you keep asking us, you know, what our, what our village was like, how we were surviving, where our fields were, where the well was compared to our house, whether we had a thatched roof, you know, all the kinds of questions an academic asks to understand what the living conditions were of small farmers and what might have, uh, you know, motivated them to do this, this extraordinarily heroic and, and, and risky thing to organize for their rights. And I said, yeah, I know. And they said, well, you know, we're, but it, it's just, two, it's just two, two kilometers away, four kilometers away. There's some guys going in tomorrow night and they're carrying, you know, food in, in medicine and, and there's a whole group of them. 
and you're welcome to go. You know, we've asked permission. You can go in with them. And so I went in, I think it was November 9th of, of 1981, and went into one of these, what was called an FMLN controlled zone, a guerrilla controlled zone, which is basically, a, you know, a territory where the small farmer population supports the FMLN or is the FMLN more like it in the sense that basically what the FMLN was, was essentially the youngest folks, the fastest runners who had guns. But everyone thought of themselves in these territories as, as revolutionaries in that sense. They, they were super excited by this moment in history that they were living and they were persuaded that they were going to be you know, successful in overthrowing the government and starting a new kind of more equal and just type. It was a very, very, very idealistic moment. And so I, you know, they were taking me around, showing me how they had organized cooperative fields and how they were you know, growing uh, corn and, and frijoles in that area in sorghum. And then where they're, you know, how they were training to fight to, to defend themselves from government troop uh, incursions. And, and then they had a little hospital also for wounded fighters in the region, which was basically just a, another thatched hut you know, with a mud floor. And on the second day, the Salvadoran government army launched one of its basically scorched earth search and destroy operations against this region. It was in the corner of Cabañas, that's the Cabañas province that's bordering with Honduras. And they arrived in, um, primarily in helicopters and also marched in from, from Sensuntepeque, was where the garrison was. And I think the road went all the way up to, there was like a really crummy road, a dirt road that was reaching this one hamlet called Santa Marta. But this region was about 40 square miles that the government troops surrounded, arriving by helicopter and, and, then, and then marching in. To, and, and, and there were probably about, I don't know, maybe about 20, 20 hamlets or so spread through this 40 square kilometer region. So the, the young men in the village, it was, most of the fighters were men. There were some women who, who were fighters as well, but most of, the, most of the folks carrying guns were men. And they didn't have very many guns. This was, I remember I was totally shocked because there was tons of propaganda at the time from the U.S. government saying that this was an externally financed revolution by Cuba and Russia that was pouring, you know, AK-47s and machine guns in here causing all this you know, artificial, an artificial uprising. And in fact, they, they just had miserable weapons. I mean, I think there were about 50 real, you know, heavy weapons in the whole area at the time. And this is in a region where there must have been maybe 2,000 people living. But most of the guys just had like little hunting rifles and, and pistols if they had anything. And so the, the young men and, and young women who had weapons put themselves on the periphery of the region that they controlled and were trying to prevent the troops from being able to come in on foot and from killing us and burning the houses. But they couldn't do anything about the aerial bombardment. So we were being strafed by Huey helicopters. Those are, they're actually the same thing as U.S. traffic helicopters, believe it or not. At the time, Carter, President Carter had donated them as human rights helicopters. So the machine gun turret wasn't on the outside of the helicopter. They had to open the door in order to shoot their machine guns at us. And you would see the helicopter as it flew down on us. And you could see the door open and, and the guy with his machine gun shooting down at us. There, there were also Fuga Magister planes. They called them Fuga Magister. I, I forget. I think they're a French-made plane. 
or an Israeli plane. I'm not sure. French sold to the Israelis and then sent to, it was something like that, that were dropping uh, bombs on us. And then there was old-fashioned mortar, just the straight kind of mortar that, that you see in uh, World War II movies. You could hear the mortar leaving the, the gun, and then you'd wait until it would crash you know, somewhere near you or farther away from you. And then you'd hear it again, and it would either be getting closer and closer towards you, or it would be getting further away as they were just sort of systematically bombing and mortaring and, and strafing the region. So I think that lasted for about three days, as I remember. There were several dozen people that had been wounded by that time. We, what, we, what we would do is we weren't sleeping in the houses anymore. We were sleeping in the fields. And in the particular hamlet where I was, there were some caves. And we would take refuge in the caves when we would hear the helicopters coming. And at night, we would dig a, like a, a trench and sleep in the trench so that if a mortar landed, the shrapnel would, would have less of a chance of hitting you, so you'd be under, you know, you'd be slightly lower. So after th- three days, the uh, fighters had, had, had several wounded people, and there were about a dozen civilians who'd been wounded in the various hamlets. And we basically, we all got together in a, in a huge, in a large field and decided to try to just run out of this fighting zone, to run through the line of fire that the Salvadoran government troops had tended around us and and just try to go into hiding somewhere else and just let the troops come in and burn everything and but just try to escape with our lives. We so wanted can I ask to ask you a, a quick question. Sure. sure. What what you're describing it sounds like the nature of it wasn't a lot of firefights. It was just bombing and terrorizing a civilian population. Is During, that... At this point, right? At this point, this was uh, the first three days. And so up to that time, the troops hadn't been able to come in on foot, the, the government troops. You know, when they would get too close, then they would get attacked by the guerrilla fighters. And so basically what we wanted to do was run out to become refugees in neighboring Honduras, which was just two or three kilometers away, the same way I had come in just two days earlier. But the Salvadoran troops and the Honduran troops actually had joined them set up machine guns on the Lempa River, because the Lempa River there marks the border between Honduras and, and, and El Salvador at that, at that spot in Cabanas. And they were shooting into the Lempa River, so we just we, we couldn't run through there. They were going to kill anyone that you know, tried to swim across. And they had done that already in the March before. This was in November, so nine months earlier, there had been a massacre, because this was the second time this region was subject to one of these scorched earth operations. So basically what we were hoping is that we would run out, run through the line of fire, and the idea was we were going to try to run through in single file because they just couldn't kill all of us. You know, most of us were going to make it out. So basically we waited till nightfall and then started walking down about five meters between each person so that, you know, if they started machine gunning or if the grenade landed on us or, or whatever, it wouldn't kill as many people. And when we got basically to, you know, to the edge of the line of fire, all mayhem broke loose. And that's, the, that's what they call now the Santa Cruz Massacre. And the, the precise spot was, was a hamlet called Santa Cruz, which is still there. And that was the spot that, the, that, that we had chosen to try to run through to make it out. And there was a machine gun specifically set up right in, in, uh, in what they call the little school, Escuelita de Santa Cruz, they called it. 
And that we had to literally to, to get out, we had to run the, the path ran right you know, below that. It was the path basically that was going to school or that the kids would follow to go to school. And we had to run along that. And so that was where just basically all mayhem broke out. And at that point, they were just firing just completely onto us. And we were running, you know, we were, we were running completely out of control. So basically, it was just, you know, 1,000, 1,500 people running as fast as they could, tripping over each other, diving into the ground with, you know, with machine gun bullets, grenades, and so forth. Just, and you're talking about civilians, children, yeah, basically, women, it was everyone elderly. living in the village. It was, it was, this is what I couldn't believe because you had lots of women carrying newborn babies or little kids that couldn't run, you know, two-year-olds, three-year-olds that were terrified and, and, and exhausted. A lot of people had lost their flip-flops because they, 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 they were super, super poor and they had, you know, they were walking around in sandals and flip-flops and many people had lost those in the right. So they were running in bare feet through, you know, the, through, the, through the basically jungle brambles, so to speak. So basically, that was the spot, and that's where the largest single number of people were killed. But the vast majority of us made it out. We don't know exactly how many people were killed. It was, it was the middle of the night. It was before dawn. And so there, you, you were li- literally running over bodies. And in the dark, this is, this is what was worst of all. In the dark, they were literally shooting at the sound of crying babies, because that's that's what would give away our position as we'd be, we'd be running along and then there'd be a, you know, a government army patrol and they would hear one of the babies, you know, crying or something and boom, they would start shooting at that. And at first I, I didn't quite, I mean, I just, it, it just didn't, couldn't, it couldn't cross my mind. I couldn't comprehend that. And at one point as we were running, some machine gun fire started. So I, I dove into uh, Basically, when, once the sh- when, when, whenever there would be a spate of shooting, you'd, you'd dive into the ground. That's just your instinct. And I dove into, uh, I forget whether it was a rock or a bush, next to, uh, next to a mother carrying a baby. And she basically you know, whispered to me, get out of here, get out of here, go. And I thought, whoa, how cruel. Why, she's, you know, this is a safer spot. There's some protection from the bullets right there. I said, why is she doing this? And then uh, I realized what, it, what had happened was I, I had woken up her baby with, you know, the, my running in there smelling horrible, you know, and the baby was starting to cry and she knew they were going to start shooting at her. So I jumped up and ran forward. And sure enough, the, the, the bullets got directed toward, towards the sound of her crying, of her crying baby. I didn't see what happened, but I imagine they didn't survive. It was literally that outrageous. And basically that's, that, that went on for the next I think it was a total of eight days, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken. We made it out eventually that night and found a hiding place in a ravine where they didn't find us. And we were able to rest for, I think it was for about 48 hours. And then the next night, the, the fighters had walkie-talkies and they were able to listen in on the Salvadoran government so they could monitor whether they knew where we were. And so in that first hiding place, about 800 of us in a, in a tiny ravine, I think it's called the, the Cuiscoyol. So we were all sort of scrunched together, trying not to make any noise, trying to keep the kids quiet and trying to uh, keep the wounded from, from, from moaning and so forth. And then after two nights, they, 
they they heard on the walkie-talkie that they had discovered where where we were and they were going to you know they were going to bomb us so we ran to an yet a, you know another hiding place and that that basically was what we did for the next you know i guess it was about 7 to 8 days we would run at night and hide during the day and then in a few spots we were able to stay a couple of days because they 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 hadn't seen us and then and the, you know the kind of thing that would give our position away for example would be we were basically, you know, starving. Uh, we had no food with us at this point. And so we would run through abandoned fields and it was the sorghum harvest at that point. They would harvest sorghum and then and then cook it up. In one in one case we caught a cow and they butchered the cow and they and they cooked it as well. And and the smoke from our fires of course would give away our position and then the Salvadoran government would call in the aerial bombardment towards the site of, of our smoking fire, so we'd have to run again. So after about eight days of that, we heard that the Salvadoran government troops and the Honduran troops had pulled away from the Lempa River, that was the border between El Salvador and Honduras, and that the coast was clear. So as soon as we heard that, we basically sprinted for the border. At that point, I don't know, it must have been about a three, four kilometer run following a stream down, you know, a tributary stream that would, that, that to, to, to reach the larger Lempa River. And that's how I, that's how I made it out. And, and most of the population made it out. And it was, a, it was, a, what was really, really tragic at that moment was you, you'd see that in these kinds of scorched earth operations, basically the people that die are the slower runners. People that die are the people making noise, the babies crying, the mothers carrying babies, the people carrying you know, people who are wounded so they have to you know, limp along slowly or they were carrying them in hammocks primarily. And, and those are the people that would get caught on foot by the raiding soldiers. So, so yeah, so I made it out to uh, the village is called Los Hernandez uh, on the Honduran side. And then eventually, and then later that day into, uh, into the refugee camp of La Virtud, and then came back to the U.S. and, and tried to get press attention for this, for what was the kinds of human rights violations that were just routine in El Salvador at that point. And I did testify in Congress in, um, I think it was in January or February of, of 1982. And, you know, the, what we were trying to do was to get the U.S government to stop giving military aid and military training to the Salvadoran troops. And now there's this initiative to bring the officers who are organizing these, you know, basically crimes against humanity, these war crimes to trial. And the colonel who had organized this particular scorched earth operation was, is this infamous Colonel Siegfried Ochoa who was a uh, presidential candidate, actually, in El Salvador a few years back, and who just recently resigned or retired from the, you know, their equivalent of the Congress or Senate in El Salvador. He's a, a super right-wing you know, politician now. And he was the favorite of the, the United States at the time. There were, there's, there's a lot of sort of newspaper features on him because he was supposed to represent the new, young, efficient, military that was no longer going to be corrupt and lazy and was going to scientifically wage the war as it should be waged, which was basically these, I mean, so these, this, this kind of scorched earth operation was what was supposed to be happening. It, it wasn't an aberration. It was how 
basically counterinsurgency wars were being waged at that time. It was, an ex- it was just an extraordinary tragedy. And it's basically what went on for the next, you know, almost, almost uh, 10 more years in El Salvador before it was finally a truce sign. So what was going through your head at the time? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you and it's, it's just really unbelievable, just everything. And I, I'm sure you were in fight or flight mode uh, running for your life and you didn't have much time to, to think about everything. But just do, do you have strong feelings or reactions from that experience? You know, I, believe it or not, I kept a diary at the time. I mean, I was an anthropologist, so I was used to writing fieldwork notes. So I kept basically, you know, the equivalent of, of sort of personal fieldwork notes. And I look back on those, I was completely and totally freaked out and terrified. I thought we were, I was sure we were all going to be killed. It didn't make any sense to me that they hadn't actually already killed us. It just seemed like a miracle that the strafing of the, of the helicopters, you know, killed so few people. But I guess those helicopters just are not an efficient way. And I guess what also saved us a lot was that the government troops were scared and, and the local fighters were, were defending their families. So, you know, they were much, much better fighters. The guerrilla fighters were much better fighters than the government troops, and they were ready to, you know, fight to the, to the end. They were, they were fighting so that their, their children, their mother, their, their wife, and, or whoever, you know, wouldn't be killed. You know, everyone has, in those kinds of moments, has sort of a personal way of dealing with trauma. And I remember what happened to me is I just stopped being able to sleep and stopped being able to eat. So I, I must have lost, uh, I forget how many, how many uh, pounds I lost. And I just became, um, you know, just sort of fixated with trying to make as little noise as possible. And I helped the, um, the they called them sanitarios. They had these medics, these basically barefoot doctors, basically you know, peasants who had been taught, um, you know, that from that book where there is no doctor that used to circulate back in the 1980s. And, and so they had, they had some simple medications, some basic painkillers and, 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 and penicillin and stuff like that. So I was carrying medication. And so I did see quite a few, uh, a few of the, uh, of the wounded because I went around with some of the medics since I knew how to sort of read and, and, and was healthy and young and could help carry things. But basically, I was completely useless. I was just another person in the way running for my life. And it wasn't as if, you know, I mean, I'm a city slicker <laughs> from New York City. It wasn't as if I knew how to survive in the, in the middle of the, of the countryside. And the rainy season had just started, so we were getting rained on and there were mosquitoes. It was absolutely, it really felt like the end of the world. But somehow, most of us made it out uh, alive. No one really knows how many people were killed. Maybe 150 or so people were killed over the, you know, over the almost one dozen days of the scorched earth operation. And most of those people were killed on the night we broke through the, the line of fire, the Santa Cruz sort of machine gun fire by the school. I want to jump to, to today a little bit. I know that you had done work with the tribunal in Santa Marta and, and yeah. as a witness on behalf of somebody who brought a, a charge against this Colonel Ochoa. What's it like having been part of a, a civilian population being terrorized like this? And then 
we're we're more than thirty years later, and in this country, people aren't aware of it at all. Um, yeah, and, no, and it, it, it is also, incredible that there's it's incredible how history gets forgotten, and and how this has just disappeared from people's memory, and how the you know, in a sense, the guilty partners are allowed to be big time politicians and go on in total impunity. You know, claiming that what they did was for the you know for the good of saving the country. It's a it's a real tragedy. So basically, the folks at the University of Washington, who uh, the Human Rights Center at the University of Washington, Angelina Godoy, contacted me and told me about this initiative of bringing war charges against Colonel Ochoa, who had led our military invasion. In fact, he didn't just lead the invasion. He was really one of the modernizers and designers of these scorched earth operations because, you know, he was this, this one, wonderkin, this young, young officer who'd been trained by the U.S. to modernize things. So I went down with them last year for the fourth international tribunal. It's, it's basically a mock tribunal to uh, call international attention to these, to these war crimes. And they held it that year in Santa Marta. So it was very, very moving. And I, I testified as one of the survivors. And I took, I took photographs during the, I had my camera at the time, so I took photographs during our flight. So I had pictures of us and wounded and so forth. And there, there were the villagers that I had photographed. And we, we showed them in the central plaza uh, at night in, 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 on a PowerPoint, believe it or not, in Santa Marta in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it was very, very moving. And then, to my delight, the prosecutor's office, you know, allowed me to give testimony and deposit my documents and photographs with them and did a long, systematic, you know, blow-by-blow account of the, of the military invasion. At this stage, they're still just collecting basic data. They haven't filed charges against Colonel Ochoa. They're just collecting, you know, basic complaints of, by survivors to see if they're going to file charges against him, but hopefully they will. And it would be an extraordinary precedent if they did to, to bring to trial a, a guy who's proud of having done this. You know, Colonel Ochoa talks to the press and, and acts as if he was you know, some kind of savior of the country. So it's, it's, it's actually very moving to be able to be part of this as a survivor, not as an anthropologist, or as a gringo or anything, but just as one of the survivors. And it's nice to be able to take advantage of, of my ability to have more access to the press and, and being able to you know, write things up and so forth and, and being a university professor in order to try to bring more attention to this. But it is frustrating that so few people know about it. Because basically, and none of this would have happened on this level, on this scale. There would have been fighting whether the U.S. was involved or not. But there wouldn't have been this kind of killing had the U.S. not completely funded the Salvadoran military and supported the, you know, the ultra-right death squad factions and so forth. So the, the responsibility of the U.S. Is, is complete in this, in a sense. And it's just a tragedy that, you know, that Americans don't know. When you ask, they don't know which side we were on in El Salvador and which side we were on in Nicaragua. They can't separate out the various counterinsurgency wars that the U.S. was involved with on different sides of the counterinsurgency. And yet it was their government that was determining the shots, so to speak. I don't don't think people have any comprehension of the scorched earth campaigns and what what that meant and what what we were supporting. I I just don't think people, like you said at the time, it was hard 
to even imagine or comprehend that the sound of babies it was the targets that night you know i mean it, it's yeah you know it's hard to believe that human beings can be that nasty uh, it's it's a it's a, it's a funny thing uh, even when you're in the midst of it it doesn't seem possible <laughs> at the time i remember I, I remember just thinking, I cannot believe this is happening. No, I, and and um, it, it, you know I, this shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> it, but who is not going to allow it? You know, mm-hmm. that was the that was the extraordinary thing that we were completely helpless um, under the under fire in the in the absolute mi- middle of nowhere with no witnesses, but just the troops shooting at us. So I know we're coming up to the to the top of the hour here, or maybe we've sure. gone past. But um, I'm just kind of wondering, how did this experience shape your your life and your career after it? I mean, you know, you, you're, you're talking about it, and I can only imagine what it must have been like to be there. And I can't see how it hasn't had an impact on your life in in some way. And I'm just yeah, absolutely. You're you're, you're you absolutely right. It, you know? yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, in some sense, I remember when I got out, I said, I told myself, Philippe, you should have died. Everything after this is a gift all the rest of your life. So don't be distracted by all the minor anxieties. Get a perspective on things. And I was hoping that that would make me, in some sense, wiser and sort of aware of what the big issues and, 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 and what to focus on in life. But in fact, one is just a you know, paltry human and falls right back into the daily grind of, of all our petty ambitions and personal terrors. But that's normal. We're just humans. But it feels like the most important thing that ever happened to me. You know, it's made me be very, very conscious and aware of what's going on in the rest of the world where, you know, there's counterinsurgency wars all over and massacres that have been going on, you know, certainly every year since, you know, in different forms, different political forms than in the 1980s when it was all set in the Cold War framework, that being aware of the tragedy of wars and civil wars and warlord taking over and so forth. So that's made me acutely aware of that. And as in anthropology, I focus specifically on violence as my main topic. It's what I'm known for in terms of my writing. So I've been trying to figure this out theoretically and call attention to it on a, on a human rights level. But, you know, few people read books. They do see movies. So it's great uh-huh. that you're doing video. It's a much more effective way of reaching larger numbers of people. And, uh, and, and I'm really thankful that you're doing this project for that reason. It's great that you're calling attention to it and adding your grain of sand to making people aware of it. Well, we really appreciate you coming on here today and, and sharing some of your experiences. It's incredible to me, and I think what you bring is the ability to tell this story and articulate it in a way that many Americans can understand, you know, that... The peasants of El Salvador have been telling their stories for years, but there's always the language barrier. And as you said, you have access to media and kind of can be that voice. So we're very appreciative of of you coming on and and sharing your experiences. Well, thank uh, you. And congratulations to you for for surviving this yourself and Mm -hmm. for being dedicated to this. It's really a beautiful thing to see. I'm really moved by it. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, John, I don't know if you have any other questions. No, it was great talking to you. Thanks for, for spending some time with us. And I'll send you some materials about our project if you're interested. And uh, Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks so much. Terrific. Right. And good luck with your work.
Okay. Bye bye. Thank you very bye-bye. much.